it's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. <laughs> oh, Pastor Craig D'Onofrio is uh, sitting in the studio with us today, and uh, he's doing a shimmy of some kind, and he's uh, wearing a t-shirt that says Infidel. I knew that. It just comes as no surprise to me that you're an infidel. And it says it both in English and Arabic. So, uh, <clears throat> you uh, radical Islamic extremist terrorists, that's your man right there. Come and get it. <laughs> Welcome to another edition of Fighting for the Faith. I am Chris Roseboro. And uh, I am your servant in Christ. Here to dish up a daily dose of discernment, and uh, we've—I've overprepared. I've got too many things. I, I have to do what they—you know—how's it going? That uh, remember that uh, kung fu uh, TV series? You must focus, grasshopper. <laughs> I'm not focusing. I've got too many things to cover. <sighs> All right. So what we'll do is we'll try to narrow this down. Again, thank you guys for participating in the Name the Kayak contest. The uh, The name of the kayak now is the Paddle Driven Boat. You know, go fight, win. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the uh, second and third runner-up and the fourth runner-up, which was actually still my favorite one. My wife wouldn't let me name it, the one I really wanted to name it. The one I really, really wanted to name it was the <clears throat> Your Best Kayak Now. It's so near and dear to my heart. See, I don't have Joel Osteen's teeth, and I don't have his hair, and I don't have a skinny little body. And Put that on the bottom of the boat. Yeah, I'm a victim instead of a victor. Anyway, we're going we're gonna, to uh, tie the kayak onto the top of the uh, FJ Cruiser and take some photographs of it and put it on the website. Speaking of the website, if you go to fightingforthefaith.com, at the very top of the page, it's a featured post. We have a PDF for you to download uh, regarding our... Paula White's upcoming Day of Atonement offerings. Um, to help uh, Pastrix pa- Paula White out, we've actually posted a PDF at fightingforthefaith.com that you can download. And those of you who have children, you can have your children color it. It features a ram, two male goats, and a bull, which, according to Leviticus 17, are the real biblical uh, offerings that go along with the real Day of Atonement. And... Uh, you know, since she's now going to be once again rerunning her financial scam, telling you that uh, you can have your name written in the thing called the Book of Blessings, which is nowhere to be found in Scripture. How inconvenient that must be. But uh, <clears throat> so if you would like your name written in the Book of Blessings this year, we recommend that you follow the biblical model and uh, send in your offering of a ram, two male goats, and a bull. You can download this, print it out. The uh, address for you to send it in is on our website. Please participate. I think I'll be sending 100 myself. It's worth every bit of postage. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, and uh, I look forward to seeing what kind of response we get from Pastrix Paula White. You know, she's in October, she's going to be going on a cruise ship. You know, they, they have these, you know, these Christian cruises where, you know, you, the top Christian leaders, you know, are like the featured people on the cruise ship. And Josh McDowell is one of the featured speech speakers along with Pastrix Paula White. You know, I got to tell you, not that they would ever invite me on a cruise like that. I, I, I In fact, I'm, I kind of am thinking I'm the last person that they would invite. <laughs> you know, because, you know, it would be something me getting up and speaking on on a cruise ship where uh, I shared the uh, the podium with Pastrix Paula White. My topic would be Pastrix Paula White and her heresies and why you shouldn't listen to a damn word that woman says. Otherwise, you'll go to hell. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> I'm sure it would be entertaining in the first right. But um that's why they won't be inviting me to such things. I don't understand why Josh McDowell would share, you know, the the podium with Paula White. Why is it that uh, guys who we would cons- generally consider orthodox have so little discernment as that they would go on the same cruise? And in a way, you know, think about it. Pastrix Paula White is getting some of Josh McDowell's um, prestige. You know, it's as if by sharing the docket with her, you know, he's... 
basically saying, yeah, she's okay, she's a Christian. She's not. She's just a huckster. So, <clears throat> anyway. All right. <clears throat> Got a uh, comment that came in at the Fighting for the Faith website, and I've promoted it to email status. You know, so I can respond to it. See, I can, I'm actually, because, you know, I run my own website and do my own radio program, I have the ability to give battlefield promotions. So a comment that you leave at fightingforthefaith.com, I could give it a battlefield promotion and promote it all the way to a, a bona fide email that I can then comment on on the radio program. Just one of the magical things that I'm capable of doing here. And uh, it, it's one of those things where it's just one of my favorite topics, and so we'll have to talk about it. Remember the uh, sermon review we did from uh, Chuck Curry in Portland, Oregon, where he was basically arguing that all these different paths lead to, lead to God? Well, <clears throat> Brian writes on that particular post, <clears throat> here's what he says. Clearly, the conversation on this site is about having different perspectives on Christianity. Really? So it's okay. is, it, is it a valid thing to say that one perspective of Christianity says that Jesus is the only way, and yet another perspective in Christianity, and still it's Christianity, says that there are many ways to God. Hmm. You know, we don't operate our lives like that, by the way. You know, when you're driving down the street and the light turns red, do you say, you know, it's another valid interpretation to think that that, light, that red light is actually green. Therefore, I'm just going to blow right through it. Do you ever do that? No, <clears throat> neither do I. You know, another valid interpretation, you know, that I've only got $600 in my checking account, but, you know, it's another valid interpretation to think that I actually have 600000 and I'm going to go spend like I have that. Because that's just a valid, another valid interpretation. No, it doesn't work that way. <clears throat> Brian continues, Anne Lamalt gives a nice reminder of these kinds of conversations. This guy sounds like he's an emergent. Here's the quote from Anne Lamott. The opposite of faith is not doubt. It is certainty. Yeah. Th <laughs> I just got it. <laughs> you didn't know that? That the opposite of faith is not doubt, but certainty. Opposite of white is seven? Uh, yeah, the opposite of white is seven. The opposite of blue is Thursday. Okay. Oh, man. Now, I kid you not. This is a quote from Anne Lamott. She is so smart that she, her, her, her knowledge and her ideas just transcend traditional logic. <clears throat> Let me read this again. The opposite of faith is not doubt. It is certainty. It is madness. You can tell that you have created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. <sighs> okay. The first holy truth about God is that people of true faith have always had to accept the mystery of God's identity and love and ways. And then there's the Apostle Paul who says, we see through a glass darkly and only in part. God is enigmatic, shrouded in a mystery, covered in a conundrum, mystically mystifiable and beyond comprehension. Yeah, I made God in my image. Yeah, that's I, Is that the God of the Bible? Is is the God of the Bible so ridiculously enigmatic that uh, we cannot possibly know whether or not there is only one true God? I mean, doesn't the God of the Bible actually reveal himself as the way, the truth, the life? That's Jesus Christ. It didn't doesn't the God of the Old Testament, who happens to be Jesus by the way, <clears throat> keep that in mind. You know, everyone talks about how loving Jesus is and this idea that Jesus is this loving Boy Scout who helps little old ladies across the, the Sea of Galilee, right? Well, keep in mind when uh, God commands Joshua to go and kill everybody in, in Jericho, um, that the God who was speaking is also the very same God that Jesus is. And you can say that's Jesus speaking, Right? And I thought he was just loving and kind. See, the seeker-sensitive God is <clears throat> just nothing to be afraid of. But uh, read the end of the book. Read the end of the book. You get into the Revelation, that kind and loving Jesus, he's got a sword coming out of his mouth. 
And uh, now I'm not saying that God doesn't love or that Jesus doesn't love. In fact, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's important that we human beings understand that uh, these rooms, these, these words don't leave room for doubt and that faith, the opposite of faith, is not doubt. Oh, wait a second. No, sorry. <clears throat> Let me rephrase this. Anne Lamont is wrong because the opposite of faith is doubt. In fact, faith is certainty. Did you know that biblically? It is true. It is true. Let me make my case. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Read it in context. The verse we're going to uh, really hone in on is verse 22. Here's what it says. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Confidence. Confidence. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. I thought we were supposed to have uncertainty. Hmm. Okay. Um, by the new and living way that he opened uh, for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Full assurance sounds like certainty to me. Um, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his... Okay, we have a great priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. That sounds like confidence speak to me. Hmm. All right, moving ahead. By the way, uh, Hebrews 10.22, the uh, Greek word that we translate as full assurance of faith... It, the Greek word there is uh, pleuraphoria. It means a state of complete certainty, full assurance. Did you know that? <clears throat> so Anne Lamont, um, she says the opposite of faith is not doubt, it is certainty. I'm sorry, but the Bible actually defines faith as certainty. And faith always has an object. And if you read Hebrews 10, it's really clear that we're to have certainty regarding Jesus Christ, who is the object of our faith, that we can draw near to God because of Christ's shed blood for us. Faith is certainty. Faith is trust. Faith is being sure of what you hope for, certain of what you cannot see, Scripture says. I'm sorry, Anne Lamont, you are dreadfully wrong. <clears throat> By the way, there's some more passages we can bring to bear here. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. That's that word, pleraphoria, uh, again. You know that that kind of men we've proved to be among you for your sake. Hebrews 11.1, uh, 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. The uh, the word Greek word for uh, certainty there is elegos. Elegos. And uh, again, it means certainty, full assurance confidence so um unlike what ann lamont and uh, brian are saying here um no god is we will we'll affirm that god is enigmatic in the sense that we don't know everything about him but what he has revealed about himself we can know with certainty we can know that for sure with confidence because that's what faith is faith is being sure confident of what we hope for certain of what we do not see. So uh, having certainty in Jesus Christ, who is the object of our Christian faith, does not put us into the realm of madmen. In fact, that's what the scriptures teach us to, uh, to do. All right. Now, yesterday, I began a conversation on the shack. I want to uh, continue that conversation. I didn't want to cover it all in one day because, you know, with, I really wanted to handle this one a little differently than I normally would. And the reason why is because is it doesn't really fit into the normal uh, simple propositional truths that you get, you know, from like Anne Lamalt. Okay. The shack is a story and it theologizes and um, 
yesterday I talked about the fact that uh, one of my main concerns about the book is that it's smuggling in some ideas that I don't necessarily agree with and I don't think are biblical. And one of them, the first one we talked about yesterday, was this idea that uh, that that uh, William Young, the author of The Shack, is attacking and undermining Sola Scriptura by characterizing it as putting God in a box or <clears throat> putting God in a book. And I showed from Hebrews chapter 1 that uh, that's not really how we're to look at Scripture. We're to look at Scripture as... Uh, as God speaking to us in these last days through Jesus Christ. And so all of Scripture is not limiting God at all. In fact, it's a trustworthy record of the actions of what God has done in human history to rescue humanity from a sinful condition. And we can trust and be excited and rejoice and put our hope and our confidence in what is being said. And that's not in any way limiting God because God has promised that he is speaking in Scripture. He hasn't uh, promised to speak to you through your liver shivers, your subjective experiences, your dreams and visions. In fact, those things, uh, over and over again, I've made the claim, and I'll say it again, is is that uh, you know I'm not saying God can't speak to you directly, but so many of the people who claim that God is is talking to them to, directly, um, they they also have characterized uh, their teaching is characterized by false doctrine and heresy. So there's no reason in the world I should believe that God is speaking to them. Lest I need I remind you all of Todd Bentley in that circus that went on down in Lakeland. You know how that thing fizzled out, by the way. You know I haven't I haven't talked about it on this program. You know Todd Bentley and the whole Lakeland uh, outpouring and stuff like that. That all came to a grinding halt because guess what? It was discovered that Todd Bentley the entire time was having an emotional affair with uh, one of the gals on staff. And now he's separated from his wife. And it also has come to light that he was drinking heavily during the uh, Florida outpouring. So, in other words, the Florida outpouring really wasn't an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It was an outpouring of different kinds of spirits, the kinds you can drink. <sighs> yeah, we pray for Todd Bentley's family because it's never something you want to gloat over the fact that somebody's family is destroyed. That's a very sad outcome. But we were saying all along while it was going on that it's... Uh, complete hoax, a, a sham, a scam. And he was claiming that he was receiving direct from revelation from God, seeing angels, actually having face-to-face -face conversations with Jesus Christ himself. And to which I was basically saying, hogwash. Ain't no way. Because his doctrine didn't comport with Scripture whatsoever. So in, in uh, the shack, William Young, you know, speaks disparagingly of the concept of sola scriptura. Now, there's some other things in here, and you probably have heard about this. Um, in the book, The Shack, um, uh, the, the main character, Mackenzie, has a face-to-face -face meeting with the Trinity. Well, it turns out that the way William Young portrays the Trinity, in the, especially in the, uh, the bulk of the book itself, then there's a slight change at the end, but the, uh, the Trinity is composed of Aunt Jemima, uh, a Japanese gal by the name of Sarayu and Jesus Christ. And I'm not being facetious when I say Aunt Jemima because God the Father in the uh, in, in the bulk of the book is portrayed as a very large African-American woman whose name is Papa. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit is kind of an ethereal character, um, Surayu, and uh, she's she is described as um, did I mention that fact that it's it's she she is described she is described as as uh, a, a very wafy Oriental Japanese type of gal Surayu maybe from Nepal you know she's definitely of Eastern descent and so um, one of those things where you just kind of have to scratch your head and go. Huh? Now, I, I've i been around long enough, because, you know, I'm old. I've been around long enough to actually have lived through some of the battles over the liberals who were trying to come up with Bible translations that completely eradicated and eliminated all of the masculine pronouns in Scripture that describe God as a he. And, uh, you know, we referred to them as the neutered Bibles, you know. It's when so whenever you talk about God, it's he, she, or it. 
you know, it's it, it's because and and the general argument goes as well. God is spirit. He's neither male nor female. And, you know, and so therefore we, you know, it's it's offensive in this modern age to think of God as only a he and it limits God. Um, it, you know, so you know, we, you know, and so I've <laughs> I can actually point you to examples of churches not too far from here, in fact, who uh, in their daily prayers or their prayers that they give at their churches will refer to God as mother. And they're supposedly Christian churches or God as, uh, you know, you know, you know, father, mother, you know, the combo, the he, she God. And their argument is, is that, you know, because God is neither male nor female, that they can do such things. Now, all of this reminds me of a, of a debate I once had with a feminist regarding this very topic. Uh, warning ahead of time, I'm going to uh, th- this this might be a little rough and tumble as I relay the details of this particular debate um the position i was taking is is that god is male he's revealed himself as male and i said i can actually prove definitively in 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 an incontroversial incontrovertible way that god is a male and uh the feminist that i was debating scoffed at the idea here comes the part you might want may not want your kids to listen to i said absolutely i can prove it i said jesus christ had a schwanstika. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He had a penis. And that I swear that woman, I think she she almost choked when I said that. And I said, and not only did he have a penis, I said when he was raised from the dead, he did not have the lapidophamy uh, uh, surgery. And he, when he ascended into heaven, still continues to have his male counterpart. As you can probably imagine, the debate didn't really go well from there. Um, <laughs> I wish I had it on tape. Anyway, um, so uh, I'm going to stick to my guns on this one, okay? And here's the deal, is that although I understand the sentimentality that people have that God is neither male nor female and that God created both male and female— uh, the problem with the argument really breaks down when you think about the fact that God made puppy dogs, God made kittens, God made fish, gophers, uh, God made slugs, snails, birds, um, sea darters. Uh, he made orcas. He made he, he. You understand what I'm saying? And so, if that's the case, then we really need to not limit God to any particular species as well, because God isn't human either, is he? And from God, God, cre- God created all these other animals as well. So we can just as, as well say that uh, all the humanizing of God is really offensive to the whales and the non-humans that God has created. Why, couldn't, wouldn't it be valid if we go ahead and just portray God as a big whale or a dolphin? You know, he, God, God is flipper. You know, God the Father should have could appear in the book of the Shack not as a human being, but as a, as as Flipper the uh, the dolphin going, <laughs> you know, right? See, the argument breaks down when you when you apply a reductio ad absurdum to it. God is neither; he's not human, and he's neither male nor female. But here's the deal: in Scripture, God only reveals Himself as male. He doesn't reveal himself as female. Now, I don't know why God does that. And Jesus Christ has a schwanstika. That's from uh, Young Frankenstein, for those of you wondering where I got that term from. He's got a penis. Valbluka. <laughs> Nowhere in Scripture do we have the leeway the wide birth, if you would. Nowhere do we have the ability to portray God as anything else because he has personally revealed himself using male pronouns, using male concepts, father, son, even the Holy Spirit is not female. Right? So... um. Uh, here's the way I'm going to break this down is, is that if that's the way God is going to reveal himself, then if God is going to appear to you in a shack on a weekend, he ain't going to show up as aunt Jemima. 
Okay, and this is one of the major things that I have wrong with this that I think is wrong with this book is that it portrays God, the father, Papa, as Aunt Jemima. Now, I will give credit to the author in this sense. It is really ridiculously ethnocentric of us to be to think that that God, the father is a white guy. Right. Yeah, I'm, you know, this. But uh, let me let me find some cogent passages here. Now, what's funny is, is that uh, the author actually explains why he chose to uh, have God the Father appear to Mackenzie as a woman. This is from page 93 of The Shack. <clears throat> Here's what Papa says. Uh, she, that's Papa, God the Father picked up a wooden spoon again, a dripping with some sort of batter. Mackenzie, I am neither male nor female, even though both genders are derived from my nature. If I chose to appear to you as a man or a woman, it's because I love you. For me to appear to you as a woman and suggest that you call me Papa is simply to mix metaphors to help you keep from falling so easily back into your religious conditioning. Really? Yeah, <clears throat> Uh, let me let me let me continue reading. She leaned forward as if to share a secret. To reveal myself to you as a very large white grandfather figure, with flowing with a flowing beard like Gandalf, would simply reinforce your religious stereotypes. And this weekend is not about reinforcing your religious stereotypes. Okay, so here we've got religious conditioning and religious stereotypes being attacked, if you would being challenged. Well, where do we get our religious conditioning from as Christians? Or where are we supposed to? From God's word, right? So if you are an avid reader of God's word, I commend you for being so, then you, then through the conditioning that you are getting through God's word, you are having the stereotype, sorry to call it that, that God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit, God is He, 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 not she. Ever, never is God referred to as she. Ever, God is He. You are having that that conditioning, that stereotype being taught to you by the scriptures, and this mixing of metaphors kind of reminds me of the stuff that Brian McLaren does. And if you've read Brian McLaren's book, A Generous Orthodoxy, where he's a flaming snowflake. Um, he lives in paradox of all of these things that are mutually exclusive. Why I'm a legalistic, grace-filled, uh, Methodist, Calvinist, Armenian, whatever. Um, at the near the end of the book, McLaren literally says that he is purposely do, deconstructing things and he considers it a form of chemotherapy so that he can kill these religious stereotypes that Christians have so that after he's killed it with his chemotherapy, he can build on it something else. Young here in the book, I think, is doing something similar. Okay, he's challenging what we are getting in the scripture. First of all, he's bagged on sola scriptura, labeling it as putting God in a book. And now he's uh, mixing metaphors on purpose so as to challenge religious conditioning and uh, to, to not reinforce religious stereotypes. Well, um... Okay, where do we get religious conditioning and stereotypes from? From God's word. So this is there's a problem here. There there is definitely a problem here when you've got God the Father running around as Aunt Jemima, and the argument that he uses here is because God is neither male nor female breaks down because God is not human either, and God could appear to you as a as a cockroach because he made those too, didn't he? Maybe he can appear to you as a female cockroach. I'm sure that God would have a lot of, to say as a female cockroach. So, um, I've, there's there's a big problem here, really, really big problem here. And over and again, if you've studied the religions of the world, goddess worship um, leads to all kinds of crazy stuff, all kinds of crazy stuff. And it's not sanctioned in Scripture, and it's not the way God has revealed himself. So we, as Christians, should have confidence in how God has chosen to 
reveal himself and trust that he knows what he's doing and the reasons for what he's doing, even though we don't like it. It may not fit in today's politically correct American psyche to, to, to have God as, as, as this male figure. So what? Get over it. God is God and you are not. You don't get to make God in your own image. And whether you like it or not, God has a schwanstika. And I know that that's offensive. But I defy any of you to prove me wrong because the scriptures make it very clear that he does. Jesus Christ, sitting at the right hand of the Father, did not have the lop it off of me. Procedure done to him before ascending into heaven. And he sits on the throne of heaven in full male glory. Something to think about. I know that's going to upset some people. <laughs> if you would like to uh, email me and let me know how upset you are that Jesus has a schwanstika, um, please do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. We'll be right back. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus flock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. Available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com or the big picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. All right, welcome back to Fighting for the Faith. I may have single-handedly just driven off every listener that I've, I've ever had. <laughs> and yet I'm going to stick to my guns. Jesus was not a Ken doll. He was a man, circumcised on the eighth day. Hard to do a circumcision if you don't have the plumbing for such a thing. <sighs> I know that's going to make some people mad. I can't wait to read the email. All right, got to talking about email. Moving into our next segment here. Um Dan uh Dan writes, um I was wondering if you have any critical commentary on this new church-wide campaign that is going on, the Live Like You Were Dying campaign. Live like you were I thought we we're all dying. All right, he, he said, it's hit my church full bore. This new campaign is straight from some of the top gurus in the purpose-driven movement. If you get a chance, I was wondering if you could check this series out and do a show on it. Well, there's a show idea. In fact, I love show ideas. If you guys want to send me ideas on stuff that you would like me to examine, please feel free to do so. You can email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Um, anyway, if, uh, he says... Uh, I'm trying with all of my God-given mind to analyze this in light of the Bible and find the whole concept of the live like you were dying campaign way out there. I'm truly upset as the new pastor of church has eaten this stuff up. How do I combat this this at just as just a church congregant? Now that's a whole different issue. 
um, if you're pa- if you got if you're going to a purpose driven church and you're going to try to combat this as a church congregant, uh, you're going to be given the left foot of fellowship because that's what the purpose driven church teaches them to do with people who are dissidents. They don't they don't tolerate dissidents because you're supposed to get you're supposed to unquestioningly get behind the vision of the pastor. But uh, let's take a look at the uh, the live like you were dying campaign they actually happen to have a website it's uh llywd.org live like you were dying.org and it's a full-blown 30-day church-wide series campaign and they have hosting coaching tips and and there's a there's small group study material and um what is this all based upon the popular tim mcgraw song live like you are dying in fact, they even have a um, Christianized version of the song just for the series. Uh, in fact, uh, l- l- let's play a little bit of the Live Like You Are Dying. I think this is the uh, the uh, Christian version of the bucket list that we're listening here to. But Tim McGraw, apparently, I did not know that Tim McGraw's uh, song, Live Like You Are Dying, is now a Christian anthem. But here we go. feel myself dying as I listen to this. Cue tears. You said I was in my early 40s With a lot of life before me When a moment came that stopped me on a dime I spent most of the next days Looking at the x-rays Talking about the options And talking about sweet time I asked him when it sank in That this might really be the real end How's it hit you when you get that kind of news? Man, what you do? And he said I went skydiving I went Rocky Mountain climbing I went 2.7 seconds On a full name Blue Manchin And there's the shock. Guess what? All of these little things that he did, uh, with the exception of the skydiving, and stuff, those are the actual names of the sermons that go along with the Live Like You Are Dying. And he said, Someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. All right, enough of that. All right, I think you get the point here. The uh, So the sermon series, uh, the 30 days wide purpose-driven campaign, it's a fad, folks. Um, Tim McGraw wrote a song that pulled and tugged on heartstrings. And, and just like all the Jesus junk in the Museum of Idolatry, somebody out there thought, hey, let's Christianize this and turn it into a sermon series because... Wouldn't it be all great? Wouldn't it be great if we all lived like we were dying? Wouldn't the world be a better place? And wouldn't you be a more moral person if you lived like you were dying? Except for Pastor D'Onofrio, because his shirt says that he's an infidel. So you know, the, the, that could get you killed. So yeah, I mean, you're living like you're gonna die. Maybe it's an accidental suicide. Yeah. Anyway. So what do we do with this? And um, the the sermon series, if you were to buy the campaign, let that sink in for just a minute. If you were to purchase, or if you're a pastor and you were to purchase, did I mention that you were buying this? If you were to pay the money and get the small group resources and the... Uh, and the chord charts and, and the promo videos and the um, pre-packaged service, or I'm sorry, worship experience outlines. Did I mention that you were paying for this? 
You, you wouldn't even need to put any thought into it whatsoever. You don't have to actually open up your Bible and, and actually read an exegete a passage. All you have to do is deliver what you've purchased. Did I say anything about buying this? Anyway, the, uh, the, the names of the sermons are, get this, um, Speak Sweeter, Live Better, Love Deeper, and Give Forgiveness. Just like the Tim McGraw song. Here's the problem with it. You want, if you really want to figure out how do you unpack this and how do you attack it, how do you know what, how, you know what there's something wrong with it, and you're just sitting there going, "What is it?" Some of you, you know, just you know, you know just this is the kind of stuff that when you see it and hear it, something inside of you just goes, "Stuff grosses me out," and you're not exactly sure why. Let me help. Let me help give you the whys, because uh, this is an improper use of God's law. Who's doing the work here? You are. You have to live better. You have to speak sweeter. You have to love deeper. And you have to give forgiveness. And the whole point of this is so that you will live like you are dying. This is the Christian version of the bucket list. Okay? Funny movie, by the way. Um, all right, so this is the Christian version of the bucket list. The, the, the way the Christians do the bucket list is they live better, speak sweeter, love deeper, and give forgiveness. Law, 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 where's Christ? So what I thought I would do is I actually did some research on the internet. Oh, oh here are the prices. Oh, thank you. Pastor D'Onofrio, the, uh, Johnny on the spot, the starter kit for the uh, Live Like You Were Dying this the starter kit is a uh, hundred bucks ninety nine ninety nine. The small group DVD each one is fourteen ninety nine. The companion booklet seven ninety nine. The gift book with CD five ninety nine. The scripture memory key tags that say "Live like you were dying" so that you can remember that you were supposed to live like you were dying. Sixty two ninety nine for forty two. Uh, yeah. yeah. Hello, people. Um, I, the, there's a reason why pastors like this kind of stuff because that's they don't have to do any work. They don't have to actually open up the Bible and figure out what it means and preach about it. It's all done for you. So the Christian version of the bucket list: list live better, speak sweeter, love deeper, give forgiveness, embrace eternity. I found a pastor that actually uh, preached a sermon on this and happened to put the MP3 audio up, and I thought it'd be interesting to listen to him for a little bit. Because, again, this, it, this, by the way, is an improper use of God's law. What is the purpose of the law? To condemn. To condemn. It's, it, it's designed to kill you. Okay? If you're going to preach the law right, you have to nail people to the wall with it. And condemn them not for just what they do, but for what they are by nature. Don't, you know, and don't sit there and say, come on, you can do it. Come on, just try Live like you were dying and see what a difference it'll make in the world. Huh. I love it when you try harder. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Okay, Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says the purpose of the law is, to, is for showing you the knowledge of your sin. It's to condemn you. These folks, over and over again, this is what pietists do. They preach the law in such a way that... Here's three simple steps, five basic applications. If you do these simple things, then you will be making God happy. If you think that you can make God happy by applying five simple principles, you are out of your mind. Okay, because even your good works. Oh, that's right. The Bible says that our good works are like, oh, sorry. Here's a female um, metaphor. Filthy menstrual rags. All of our good works are like filthy menstrual rags. And to which I say, disgustingly gross. Ew. Okay. Anyway, let's uh, let's dive into a little sermon. So that you can get a sample of the kind of uh, naggy preaching you're going to get um, that's completely misguided. All a misunderstanding of God's law that you'll get from the love deeper, speak sweeter... Christian bucket list known as the live like you were dying man what'd you do and he said I went yeah the sermon begins with a song I'm gonna fast forward a little bit here 
let's move ahead. To live like you were dying. A little fighting for the faith karaoke there. What did you do with it? What did I do with my life? I sinned my way all the way through it. Even when I was being good, I was sinning. Rock and mountain climbing. On a full name, full Sorry, rocking out here. Oh, sweeter. This makes me want to go out and hug some guy. Let's go into the wilderness and beat a drum. Will you be my accountability partner? Okay, so the pastor at this church started the sermon by playing Tim McGraw's new Christian anthem, Live Like You Were Dying. He approaches the podium. Well, what a powerful song. Uh, Seems like it was only four years ago that that song came out when I did a little research to see exactly when that happened. I was kind of surprised because... You know, it, it, listening to it seemed like about four or five years to me, too. Seemed like it just kind of, I started hearing it yesterday, but uh, four years ago. And don't know if you know much about Tim McGraw, but uh, at the end of that uh, video, you saw the guy pitching. That was his dad, Tug McGraw. And that last pitch was the last pitch of the 1980 World Series that the Philadelphia Phillies won. The only World Series he's ever won. He pitched the pitch. And just a few uh, months after this song was recorded, his father passed away of cancer. And so as he sings this song, he's really singing about the reality in our life of how important each day is. And what it would really mean in our life to live for the things that matter most. Okay. All right. You know, actually, Scripture does talk about living like you were dying. But actually, it actually tells us to live like we're dead. Um, we could talk about baptism and how it relates there. That's important. But uh, let's hear what the most important things are. By the way, this sounds just like a Rick Warren sermon. Remember the 40 days of love? The most important thing is that we uh, love God and love others, which is the law. You know, let, yeah, as if that's going to get you into heaven. Well, let's hear what this pastor has to say. To live like we were dying. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about that. Not because we want to talk about death. That's not what we're going to talk about. What we're going to talk about is life. Fullness of life. Living for the things that matter most in our life. Not just living day to day with no purpose. But bringing some... Oh. So living like you're dying is uh, living a life of purpose. It's a purpose-driven life. Okay. Intentionality to it. I just think it's so exciting that we can do that, and especially that we can do that on a day like today, Easter Sunday. <laughs> this is an Easter Sunday sermon. Let's hear what he talks about regarding Easter Sunday. Uh, pa- Pastor D'Onofrio, um, when you preach on Easter Sunday, do you generally preach about uh, the people there and the things they need to do or what Christ did on Easter Sunday? Uh, usually... Something about Jesus rising from the dead. Something about Jesus rising from the dead. Okay. Um, but didn't Jesus rise from the dead to show us how to overcome the adversity in, in, in our life? No. Oh. I must have gotten that completely wrong. <laughs> All right. Let's move along. Well, the best example of living like you're dying was Jesus Christ himself, who came to this earth and who knew that his time was short. Who knew that he had a purpose. Yeah, he went Rocky Mountain climbing. And he rolled a bull mate named Fu Manchu. And he loved deeper and spoke sweeter. And who knew that it wasn't about the length of his life. But it was about the impact of his life. 
And that's what I want to challenge us all to think about over the next few weeks. What would it mean? What would it mean for you? What would it mean for your family? What would it mean for the people around you? If you lived for the things that matter most. And each message and each small group discussion and each daily reading and each scripture. I just threw up a little in my own mouth. Man. (laughs) Ah, it's a legalistic moralism, moralizing. Jesus is an example of living like you were dying. (sighs) You better start getting busy, folks. If you're not living like you're dying, then... uh, you know, you're not going to be able to change the world to make an impact or yeah. Yeah. every passage during this whole series is geared toward helping us do that. Because listen, when we get to the end of our life, all that's going to matter is the difference that we made. Oh, give me a break. Because when you get to the end of your life, the only thing that's going to matter is the difference that you made. You know, I, I, I. I, I got to challenge this stupid saying that people give. Did you did, did your life make a difference in the world? You know, Hitler made a difference in the world. Okay? A difference doesn't necessarily mean a good difference. Okay? Hitler made a profound difference on the planet. Ask the six million Jews that were gassed by him. He made a difference, all right. Stalin made a difference, too. Was it 10 million kulaks? 10 million? He made a, he, Mao Zedong made a difference. You know, Hitler, one year Hitler was the, the Time Magazine's man of the year. He got the trains running on time in, in Germany after, you know, after the Depression. Right? He made a difference. We've got to stop this. This is ridiculous. God is not going to sit there when you get to heaven and face Jesus face to face in judgment, he's not going to say, you know, did you make a difference? <laughs> yes, Jesus. I made a difference. I love deeper and I spoke sweeter. And, and Jesus gives you a big hug and says, yeah, you did. Come on in. <sighs> Passage comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Live is Christ. Let's see if I can find this. Philippians. Uh-huh. Philippians chapter 1. Let's get some context here. Let's get all kinds of context here. I want to point out a couple of things from the scripture. It's ridiculous. It's one of the things I hate about these moralizing sermons. Um... I know that through your prayers, Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but will, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and for the joy in the faith. You know, I think baptism has something to say here. I just, I'm going to have to look this up in the scripture here. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Should we continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I'm sorry, but here's my my primary issue with uh, the... Uh, Christian bucket list known as the live like you were dying thing is that uh, scripture doesn't call us to live like we were dying. It calls us to live like we are dead, that we were buried in Christ. 
dead to sin and alive to Christ. Or as Christ says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Consider yourself to be a dead man walking. See, when you consider yourself dead in Christ, you are dead because Christ, in your baptism, you're buried with Christ. You're raised with Christ. Your life is hidden in Christ. As one who has been, who has died, consider yourself dead to sin. These, this is just moralizing stuff. When you look at the biblical way of looking at this, the focus is on Christ, not on the moralizing things that you do. It's on the focus is on Christ and his kingdom and the things that he's going to accomplish. Whether it be small or great in your life. And this other stuff is just another... It's more of the American delusions of grandeur kind of stuff, making a difference in the world. Let's continue. In the lives of other people. And so today we start the series by talking about what it means to live better. Get to work, folks. Go get your rat wheel right now. If you have a treadmill, this is is the Christian version of a treadmill. Get on it and start running. In fact, crank that sucker all the way up to its highest thing and see if you can hang on. And when you're done, have you gone anywhere? No. Now, when you start talking about living better, a lot of people, that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I say, what does it mean to live better? Some people say, well, uh, for me, it's kind of financial. It's like if I had more money than I have right now, I could live better. I could get better things. I could I could get bigger things. Sometimes bigger is better. That's kind of how we think about it. Maybe it's what money buys. It's a material driven answer. Living better for me means getting more things, you know, getting a getting a better truck, you know, or maybe getting a smaller car that doesn't burn as much gas. Maybe that'd be living better right now. But uh, getting a bigger house, getting a bigger this, getting a better that is bigger's better. OK, that's what living better means. All right. Uh, materialism, granted, is a sin. To me, living, living better, bigger is better. It's material driven. Maybe for you, it's your job. And you say, well, living better for me would just be getting a better job. And a lot, not every time, but a lot of times what we mean by getting a better job is getting a better job that pays me more money so I can get more things. And it just kind of goes around and around and around and around. But here's what, here's what we know. We know that if we're laying in a hospital bed and we have a, a month to live or a week to live or a day to live or maybe just a few hours to live, What we know in those moments is that we're not sitting there wishing that we had made more money, that we lived in a bigger house, or that we had spent more time at work. It's not what we're thinking about, is it? No, I'm thinking about, I'm in pain. I'm going to die. What we're thinking about is people. What we're thinking about is the difference that we made with the life that we live. And I know... Thief on the cross. How much of a difference do you think he made in the world? He, he, he's literally being crucified next to Jesus. Um, and he knows he's getting what he deserves. He, he's, he's, he's not only living like he's dying, he's dying. And uh, I don't see him going, oh, I wish I had made a better difference in the world. He knew he was getting what he deserved for his life of sin. And what's the focus at that point? Christ. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, he says. And Jesus says to the thief next to him on the other cross, the man who made no difference in the world, who was getting what he deserved, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is not going to ask you, did you make a difference in the world? That's not on the, the final examination. And those of you in Christ, there is no final examination. Jesus took the final for you. He aced it. And it's almost like he's cheating because he's giving you his test. 
That's how gracious God is. Oh, for everyone, no matter how intentional we are, I know for every one of us, we would look back and we would ask ourselves, wow, why didn't I take advantage of this? Why didn't I do this? <sighs> every Sunday I confess my sins. Every Sunday. Our service begins with a confession of sins. Lord, I confess to you that by nature I am sinful and unclean. I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by the things I've done and the things I've left undone. I, Lord, have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not even loved my neighbor as myself. And I justly deserve your presence and eternal punishment both now and forever. But I'm heartily sorry for them. Sincerely repent of them. Pray you of your boundless mercy. That you have mercy on me, a poor, sinful being. So here you got a bunch of people coming to church knowing that uh, they're nailed to the wall with this sappy song because they know they ain't living their life like they're dying. And what's the solution to this? Try harder. Do better. You got to do the things that you're going to do so that you can make a difference in the world. And yet they everybody knows that they haven't been making a difference in the world. What does that mean anyway? How do you know you've made a difference and does God require you to make a big difference, a small difference? So how do you know if you've made enough of a difference? Hmm. And what we want so much in this series is to eliminate as much of that as we can at the end of our life. Can you eliminate enough of it? You want to eliminate as much as you can. Problem is you can't eliminate it. And the people that are already there, Pastor, at this church, listening to your Easter sermon, they already know that they have, they've, they've messed up big time. And you just want to help them eliminate some of it as much as they can? For what? Will they be saved if they do? You're actually asking these people to sanctify themselves through the Christian bucket list. You think that's how that works? That we can live and what we live for would matter most. Sometimes we think about it just in terms of, you know, maybe what it would mean to, to have more time. Oh, it'd just be better for me if I had more time, you know. And what we know about time, though, is that we all have the same amount of time. That the person who has time is all stressed out about what's going on in their life and, and life just seems to be spinning and they're cramming as much things into that time as they can. That that person... Can you get your money back? If you purchase this and realize, you know, this is just not biblical. ...person has just as much time as the person over here that's not stressed out, that's life's well-balanced, that everything seems to be going... They have just as much time. It's not about having more time. It's about being more strategic about what you do. Oh, yeah, because Jesus said, you know, come to me all who are unstrategic and I will give you strategies. With the time that you have. Maybe it's just, well, if I just had better health, if I had better health, I'd live longer. And that would be better for me to live longer. Yeah, if, if I live to 100, then I guarantee you that all 100 years of my life will be just chock full of sin. It's not so much how long you live. It's what you do with your life. And the bottom line is, we, we don't like to talk about death. We don't. We don't, you know, some people die without a will. Why? Because they just didn't want to face it. They didn't want to talk about it. Some people, you know, uh, I know every year when... I write a check for my life insurance. Lisa just goes, that's just such a waste of money. You know, she won't think that the week after I'm gone. She'll be happy. But, but she's like, what? I don't even want to deal with that. I don't, I, don't even, I don't even like life insurance. You know, we just don't want to mess. This is an Easter Sunday sermon, by the way. Mess with that. We don't, most people don't have a burial plot because they just don't want to deal with it. He isn't even preaching about Christ and his resurrection. It's, a, it's an Easter Sunday sermon. Okay. In just a few weeks, I'm going to be 49 years old. I don't really think of it like that. I think of it as halfway to 98. <laughs> Man, I've only lived but I'm done. half my life, right? I mean, I don't want to think about, like, maybe I just got a few years. I'm just halfway there. 
I called my mother last year. She was 72 years old. I said, hey, happy birthday, halfway to 144. She said, I hope not. <laughs> oh, yeah, wow, I don't want that. We, you know, we, we laugh about it because we don't want to cry about it because it's just like, oh, I just don't want to deal with that. But listen, we're not here to talk about death. We are here to talk about life. And the good thing is that the Bible takes that issue that we deal that we struggle with and just faces it head on and gives us some answers, gives us some solutions. And we're going to address a lot of the issues about what it means to live a life for the things that matter most that come right out of the Bible. Things that are echoed by the song that we just heard Tim McGraw sing. <laughs> I'm in pain. I am in pain listening to this. This is exactly the kind of preaching that nearly drove me to atheism. No Christ. And don't worry, we're going to show you the things to do, that you need to do so that you can live your life in a way that you can make a difference. <sighs> no Christ. On Easter Sunday, he's uh, mysteriously missing. Anyway. I think we're just going to end there before I spontaneously combust. If you would like to uh, email me and let me know how you're loving sweeter and living better and uh, you wrote a bull name Fu Manchu, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. And remember... Jesus had a schwanstika. Just want to make you aware of that. He is not Aunt Jemima. <laughs> <laughs>